1: Welcome in to Outkick the Show. I am your fearless leader, Clay Travis. I hope all of you are having fantastic Mondays, wherever you may be across this great country or this great land. Um, I had an incredible time down in Austin, Texas. Got in late Wednesday night, came back Saturday night. You know, I was in that tough spot. I don't know how many of you have ever been in it before. Where, look, my favorite teams are the University of Tennessee, which got a good win. Any win is a good win for the University of Tennessee. Uh, And the Tennessee Titans, which was not a uh, good performance yesterday. I had my boys at that game, the NFL opener. But when I left the Alabama Texas game, which I'm going to get into in a moment, fabulous time, fabulous experience uh, down in Austin. Uh, When I left that, stadium. I, you know, got back to the hotel, picked up my bags, went to the airport. I had timed it out where I felt pretty good about being able to watch games from the airport bar, as I'm sure many of you have done before. But Tennessee Pitt ran long. And it not only ran long, it ran long in that way where when you're getting onto, you know, you can watch on your phone now. We've got all sorts of technology. But there's that time frame where you can't get on the Wi-Fi yet because the Wi-Fi doesn't start working on a Southwest Airlines flight until you get to, you know, X ceiling height or whatever uh, altitude. And so the game went to overtime right as we're going down the runway. So there's about a 10-minute period where, first of all, I had to rely on whether the Wi-Fi was going to work at all or not. But I knew the game was going to overtime. Pitt had scored that touchdown and you're sort of in an information black hole. Can't get text messages, can't check any you know, score tracker, app tracker, can't watch the game itself. So that is an awful feeling if you're a big fan of a team. I managed to time it right where my team was in overtime, where I was in that nether region where you can neither get the Wi-Fi, you can't use your phone, you have no idea what's actually going on. And then finally, uh, the the, the thing comes back on, Wi-Fi clicks in, and I'm just in time to see that Tennessee has scored in overtime. I was able to see the stop, so at least I had that win to get me through what was a disaster with the Titans. Congrats to the Giants. I'll talk about that game here in a moment. But the big stories coming out of the weekend, I would say the three biggest stories if you combine NFL and college football were one, Marshall upsetting Notre Dame, which we're going to talk about. Two, Texas A&M losing to App State. And I would say the third biggest story of the weekend in college football or the NFL was the Cowboys getting dominated by the Bucks and Dak Prescott injuring his thumb such that he will be out for multiple weeks now in what was a disastrous debut for the Dallas Cowboy 2022 Season. going to talk about all those. Let's start, however, with the game that I attended in person, Alabama-Texas. What did we learn from this game? Phenomenal battle put forward by Texas. If I had told you that Quinn Ewers was going to get knocked out of the game, that he was going to be replaced by the end of the first quarter, that Texas was only going to score 19 points, would you have thought that this game was going to be remotely close, or would all of you have joined me and taken Alabama to win something like 45 to 19, maybe even 52 to 19, if you had been aware of what was going to go on? Yet, Texas fought, I thought, outplayed Alabama for the vast majority of the game, until Alabama basically gave up on running the football put Bryce Young in the shotgun, spread out the field, and let their receivers go to work uh, without any major uh, hindrance. They finally started to get a little bit of rhythm going. But even with that occurring, Alabama still, I think, would have lost this game if we had had the sack made on the perfectly timed blitz on Alabama's final drive. Instead, Bryce Young made a whale of a play, ducked underneath that Longhorn defender, scrambled for 20-some-odd yards, set up what was, in theory, a chip-shot field goal. Now, if you're Texas, the question is, are they back? If they can put forward the same sort of effort going forward, then yes, I think you have to be very comfortable with where the program is in year two of Steve Sarkeesian. My belief, and I've told you guys this for years, is that you can tell in college football whether you've got the right coach or not, in year two. Year two is when there is progress. Year one, you might get a victory you don't anticipate. Year two is when the leap is made. I'll give you a stat. Every SEC football coach that has won a championship, won a conference championship, has had at least nine wins by year two. In other words, so far there's no example of a long build Probably Bobby Petrino at Arkansas was the closest example to this. He never did win an SEC title, but it took him a couple of years to get Arkansas turned around. But if you look right now and say, okay, uh, is Texas back? Answers no, no, but are they on the right track? I think the answer is yes. For Alabama, this game felt a lot like Auburn last year where the tied offense just couldn't get rolling. And what was similar? Jamison Williams wasn't there. How much did Jamison Williams cover up? Are the tied receivers dynamic enough to be big-time difference makers? Are the skill position players at Alabama explosive enough? Might have gotten uh, spoiled with Jalen Waddell, with Devonte Smith, with Julio Jones, certainly back in the day, uh, with all of the... Inc- Jerry Judy... All of the incredible talent, we could go on and on with all of the top receiving talent that has come out of Alabama in the Saban era, particularly in the back end of that era. And so I think it's fair to ask the question, is Alabama still as dynamic at the skill positions as they have been most years under Nick Saban? Based on what I saw Saturday down in Austin, the answer is no. Uh, So I think Alabama is not going to be as much head and shoulders above everybody else in the SEC as we may have anticipated. And you'll see that when I give you my current top SEC football rankings based only on games that have been played. Now, so that was the game that I watched in person, had an incredible time. Appreciate everybody who gave us a phenomenal reception down in Austin, Texas, both with the Clay and Buck Show and also with Big Noon Kickoff. Uh, Fun time, Friday night dinner before the game uh, I was out with the big noon uh, kickoff crew and we were all hanging out having dinner at the Vince Young Steakhouse. And uh, and I turned to Matt Leiner, Reggie Bush is there, Rob Stone, Urban Meyer. But I turned to Matt Leiner and I said, just think, uh, if you guys had actually had Reggie Bush in at the end of that USC Texas game and gotten that first down, Vince Young Steakhouse might not exist at all we might not be sitting here eating this meal right now. I don't know that Leinart thought it was as interesting or funny as I did, but good time. Brady Quinn was also there. we got a great group if you haven't watched Big Noon yet. Over 10 million people, it sounds like, watched the Alabama-Texas game, which is just a monster audience for Fox and also for Big Noon. Uh, so that's my take on the Alabama-Texas game. Uh, let's talk about App State A&M. I, I, I can't defend Jimbo Fisher's performance here. The AM offense was unable to move the ball against App State. Congratulations to App State, everyone affiliated with that program. Coming off of a tough loss to North Carolina, you go on the road in college station and honestly beat AM worse than the 17 to 14 score. You know how sometimes you can be in a game and there can be a situation where you turn the ball over four or five times or you throw a pick six, tip ball interception. You block a kick. You look at the scoreboard, and it doesn't reflect. Somebody might have 450 yards of offense. Somebody else has got 150, but they win the turnover and the, and, the, uh, and the special teams battle. And so a game that would have otherwise not been remotely close ends up very close. You guys have seen those games. That's usually how big upsets happen in college football. That wasn't A&M against App State, which is why it has to be so alarming to A&M people. You're in year five with Jimbo Fisher. You're paying him almost $10 million-ish a year. You are paying for championships. Jimbo Fisher is one game worse through 50 games than Kevin Sumlin was at a and You fired Kevin Sumlin for uh, Jimbo Fisher. And frankly, last year's win over Alabama was phenomenal. And the record in the uh, COVID season was fantastic. But by and large, Jimbo Fisher has not been able to take A&M to a truly consistent championship level. And it feels like in year five, you're going to get another 8-4 and four caliber season. Now, we'll see what happens against Miami. But Haynes King doesn't appear to be the answer at quarterback. A&M could not move the ball efficiently, effectively, or consistently against App State, who gave up over 60 points to North Carolina in the prior week and so to me as you break this down and think about it going forward I think there have to be a lot of questions about the direction of the A&M program particularly considering the fact that Texas seems to be on the upswing now A&M had an incredible recruiting class last year they've got a lot of good young talent Maybe they're still a year or two away, and you feel like you need to be patient. But I would be a little bit nervous about the slip that we have seen in the a and program since the COVID year. And the COVID year, let's be honest, was also kind of a crazy year. So Jimbo having basically the same record, in fact one game worse than what we've already seen from Kevin Sumlin, has me a little bit nervous if I am the Aggies. Also a little bit nervous, Notre Dame fans. Look, Marcus Freeman is recruiting incredibly well. I want to give the positive right off the top. Uh, I believe Notre Dame has 19 four-star commitments, one five-star commitment. They have a top five recruiting class right now. That is the positive. The negative is your quarterback's now out for a substantial period of time, and you're already 0-2. Your schedule is brutal. You've got Ohio State, you've got Clemson, and you've got USC. A lot of years, Notre Dame does not schedule a difficult manner. They were scheduling as if they were going to be a playoff contender for this season based on who they are playing. Marcus Freeman, 0-2, lost the bowl game. Not going to count that against him. But if you think about going forward for Notre Dame, this feels like a 4-8 and type season. Are they going to be able to hold that recruiting class together? Is the momentum going to stay the same? Not a lot of easy wins on that uh, Irish schedule if you look at it. I broke it down in the starting 11. This would have me very nervous. I don't think AM, the bottom, is going to fall out of their season. I think AM's probably an 8-4 and four style team. In fact, I think they'll beat Miami this weekend. I really do. Low scoring defensive struggle would be my expectation. But Notre Dame... I think Notre Dame go four and eight. And if things really came undone, they could go three and nine or two and 10. I think Notre Dame's ceiling is probably six and six when you look at the rest of that schedule. Six and six would allow you to build back up. You'd finish six and four, not a good season, certainly very bad relative to expectations. But when you lose to Marshall, I think it's a hit the panic button style game. And I'm not sure exactly what is going to bring that back. All right, Uh, another big game. Kentucky dominated the Florida Gators. I didn't think this was going to happen. Kentucky deserves credit. Wildcats could be undefeated uh, by the time they roll into Knoxville. Could be 7-0. They're going to be in the top 10. Shouldn't lose the next two weeks. Go on the road against Ole Miss. Very winnable game there. And then I believe they play Mississippi State before they would play Tennessee. I think I've got all that right. So Kentucky is going to be 4 and 0 going to Oxford for what will be a massive game to give them a chance to get to 5-0. They're going to get back their star running back, Chris Rodriguez, evidently for that uh, Ole Miss game after a four-game suspension. And Kentucky, I told you this after week one. I even told you a little bit running into the season. I said, I think the SEC East may be better than the SEC West. And I'm going to give you my top teams in the SEC here in a moment, but... That's what the data is reflecting for me so far. I think Kentucky's pretty good. I think that Georgia's very good. I think Tennessee's pretty good. All three of those teams. Not sold on the Florida Gators because I was stunned. Not that Kentucky kept it close. Not that Kentucky scored 26 points even though they couldn't do anything in special teams. They had one of the worst long snaps I've ever seen. Guy got airmailed. I couldn't even see the top of the screen. But because the Florida offense collapsed, 16-7, 16-7, to 7, Florida has the ball driving. Uh, they throw an interception, basically return for a touchdown. Everything changed at that point in time. And Anthony Richardson carried the ball 11 times for over 100 yards against Utah, four times for six yards, I believe, is the number, against Kentucky. What happened? Why was he not keeping the ball more often on the read option? Why, we know he's certainly not yet a consistent passer, which is why I compared him to Cam Newton early in the Cam Heisman Trophy year. He has the ability, Anthony Richardson does, to make any throw, to make any play, but you got to be willing to use his legs, and I was stunned that Florida didn't do that and didn't call his number more frequently. I haven't looked at the All-22. I'm not an expert when it comes to the X's and O's, certainly, but that was alarming to me and indicative of... A Florida Gator team that's just fairly average if Anthony Richardson doesn't play well, they actually slide down to below average. They've got two weeks to get ready for the trip to Knoxville. We'll see what happens there because Tennessee, Josh Heupel got a big win. Pitt is not an awful team defending ACC champions. Last year, they came down to Neyland Stadium, got a win. Tennessee should have put this game away far earlier. But what I liked here is, Tennessee got down 10-0, got down 17-7, took punches, had control of this game by the end of the first half, should have won this game, I really believe, by double digits, had to win it in overtime. Now, there were a lot of things that went wrong. Muffed punt, fumble, penalties that killed drives. Tennessee only scored three points in the entire second half That was inexcusable. I think Josh Heupel would be the first one to say it from an offensive execution perspective. But they got into overtime. They made a play. uh, Hendon Hooker hit Tillman for the touchdown. And Tennessee did something that they oftentimes could not the past several years. That is, win a game where they made a lot of errors. They didn't play well, and they still won on the road against a top-20 team. Should beat Akron. They're around a 50-point favorite this weekend. And Knoxville, Tennessee is going to be electric on September 24th when the Florida Gators roll into town. Tennessee has a chance to get to 4-0 and then hit their bye week and have two weeks to get ready for LSU on the road. Should be a tough game. But Tennessee has a real shot at an undefeated September. Josh Heupel, year two. I mentioned how you know in year two, I think you'll know whether Josh Heupel is the guy for Tennessee almost by the end of the Florida game. Because if Tennessee beats Florida, as they should, they'll be sitting at 4-0. Worst case scenario, year two, they're going to split the final eight if they beat the Florida Gators, and that's the absolute worst case scenario. I think Tennessee is then in line for a nine or ten win season in year two with Josh Heupel. Hey, Clay Travis here. Hope you guys are enjoying OutKick. The show will have more coming back next. Uh, let's get um, a couple of thoughts here. Here is my OutKick top 10, Uh, the starting 11. If you're not reading it, I don't know what you're doing with your life. I'll give you my top 10, then I'll give you my SEC power rankings. What I want to remind you, well, I also need to talk about Scott Frost, which I'll get to in a minute. Um, But what I want to remind you is I only judge teams based on what we've seen on the field so far. That is, I am not judging based on what I expect to see happen. I'm judging based on what we've actually seen happen. A lot of people don't understand that. I don't think we should have a poll, honestly, until like a month into the season because a lot of times you end up ranking teams based on how good you think they are as opposed to what they actually put out onto the field. So my top 10 right now, national top 10, Georgia, 1, Kentucky, 2, USC, 3, Tennessee, 4, BYU, 5. BYU got a big win over Baylor in overtime. Arkansas, 6. Razorbacks handle Cincinnati, and uh, right now they have been able to handle uh, both Cincinnati and, um, uh, and they have beaten uh, South Carolina. Iowa State, seven. Congratulations to Iowa State for beating Iowa. That Iowa offense really is atrocious. Washington State, eight. Monster win for Washington State. Huge underdog on the road to beat Wisconsin. Mississippi State, nine. I think Mississippi State is the second best potential team in the SEC West, right up there with Arkansas and Alabama at 10. I'm giving Alabama credit for a win over Texas. All right? Here is my SEC power rankings, 1 to 14. Okay? Georgia I've got as the best team in the SEC. That dominant win over Oregon, neutral site, Georgia Dome, whatever it is, Mercedes-Benz Stadium, the main uh, football stadium in downtown Atlanta. Uh, And then they handle Samford. It's hard to even get a read on that. Kentucky, I've got in the second spot, giving them a lot of credit for going on the road and winning in the swamp, beating Florida for two straight years for the first time since the 1970s. I've got Tennessee as the third best team in the SEC. I'm giving a lot of credit to Tennessee for going on the road and beating Pitt. That's a game that Tennessee would have lost many of the last several years. I've got Arkansas, as I said, at four home wins over Cincinnati and over South Carolina. People sometimes ask, how do you assess? I give more credit to road-neutral wins and to completely dominant performances. Just factor it in. Mississippi State, I've got at five. That was an impressive win going out to Arizona and taking them down. I've got the Crimson Tide all the way down at sixth right now in the SEC. They'll get their chance to climb back up, but nothing that I saw in person against Texas made me, if it weren't Alabama on the jersey. It didn't say Alabama on the jersey. And you watch that game against Texas, you wouldn't be thinking to yourself, hey, this is the best team in college football. I'm not even sure you would be thinking, hey, this is for sure a top 10 team. I got Florida at seven, still giving them some credit for the win over Utah. Ole Miss at eight, Auburn at nine, South Carolina at 10, LSU at 11, a and at 12, Vanderbilt at 13, and Missouri as the worst team in the SEC. Scott Frost is out. I will 100% expect and, 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 and take on all the criticism out there. I thought Scott Frost was a phenomenal hire. In fact, I'm not sure that I've ever been more confident that a hire would work than Scott Frost being the pick for Nebraska. It seemed like the return of the prodigal son, the perfect fit at the perfect time to lead Nebraska back to major relevancy in college football, and it just flat out didn't work. Scott Frost fired. Uh, He'll probably get another job in the years ahead, but I would imagine that this is a stinging rebuke for Scott Frost. Five and 22, I believe, in one score games. A lot of bad luck for Nebraska, but when you lose to Northwestern, and you lose to Georgia Southern, you just have to go. Credit to Clay Helton, former USC football coach, for the big win on the road with Georgia Southern. I was watching. I loved the quarterback sneak uh, late there to get the touchdown that put Georgia Southern ahead. Apologies to Georgia Southern and Georgia State fans out there for messing up a couple of times in my column, Georgia Southern versus Georgia State I'm writing thousands of words early in the morning. I am not perfect. I'm not trying to slight your school. I'm not trying to show disrespect. Uh, Georgia Southern gets the win uh, over uh, Nebraska. Um, And I don't know where Nebraska goes now. I think you can look at Lance Leopold. I think you could make a run at Matt Campbell. Uh, You could certainly go after, uh, you know, I would probably try to call Lane Kiffin. His family has some Nebraska connections. I would look at Urban Meyer. There are a lot of different directions that Nebraska can go. But I think the program has to be shaken to its core right now. Because they believed that they had the absolute perfect candidate to take over their program. And it was an unmitigated disaster. And so whoever you hire going forward, it's kind of tough. Kind of a tough spot to be in when the guy that you're all convinced is going to be a home run ends up striking out and striking out this soon. So I don't know what the overall result is here, uh, and I don't know who the right hire is going to be, but I do know that there are a lot of people out there that are shaken. And it's unfortunate because Nebraska has one of the best fan bases in all of college football and frankly, they seem a very long way away from being back at the top 10, 15 caliber nature. I don't know what the solution's going to be. I don't know what the resolution's going to be. Uh, but that is, uh, that's certainly a major issue psychologically going forward. Biggest story coming out of the NFL. Dak Prescott hurt in the Cowboys opener against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Tom Brady. Didn't seem to miss very much. Defense for the Bucks was elite. I don't know what's going to happen with Dak. Uh, he got a lot of money. He's been highly paid. He now has got another significant injury. He's going to be out and miss quite a few weeks of action. Maybe they go after Jimmy G. I saw ridiculously Stephen A. Smith say he would go sign Kaepernick. Stop. Kaepernick wasn't good when he had been playing football for years in a row. Stephen A. said state of Texas is too patriotic to sign him, which is a slap in the face on some level. Look, I don't think that Kaepernick is any good. Uh, I think Jimmy G. is a possibility. Maybe Teddy Bridgewater. But the bigger issue for the Cowboys is they may not have much to play for by the time, uh, by the time Dak comes back. Maybe the, uh, maybe the NFC East is still going to be so bad. But the Eagles with Jalen Hurts and A.J. Brown, that combo over 150 yards receiving for A.J. Brown. Jalen Hurts looking at different quarterback being able to throw to him. Um, I think you have to be nervous, certainly, uh, about the Giants. I'm going to talk about the Giants in a minute, getting to 1-0. Uh, and And then, look, the Washington Commanders. I mean, I don't know that the NFC East is going to be the worst division in football. So, if you're the Dallas Cowboys, you can't rely on 9-8 and eight, or maybe 8-9 and nine being good enough to win your division and get you a home playoff game because uh, I think the NFC East is trending up a little bit. Credit to Brian Dayball. Uh, I was at this game. Titans were up 13-0. They could not stop the run. Saquon Barkley back looked 100% healthy, and the Titans did a very poor job of handling him. Daniel Jones still not very good. That's why it's frustrating that the Titans put themselves into position to lose this game fourth down conversions, unable to convert on third down. It was a microcosm of all of the failures that have plagued the Titans in tight games for years. And then you have what should be a makeable field goal and you shank it. Uh, But before that, you blow your final timeout for totally unnecessary reasons. Uh, The Titans could have gotten another seven or eight yards, theoretically made it much more of a chip shot field goal than it already was. Instead, they settle. I know that, that Randy Bullock has been very good at a field goal kicker, but I think you have to give credit to Dayball for going for the win, uh, getting the ball into Saquon Barkley's hand on the little shovel pass on the two-point conversion attempt. And frankly, Titans got outplayed. They got outcoached. They got outworked. And I'm not that optimistic about what this season is going to mean uh, for the Tennessee Titans. I think Monday in Buffalo – uh, Buffalo already out to a 10-point favorite. I think it could be a brutal beatdown. Uh, Derrick Henry doesn't look like himself yet. Maybe he's going to round into form, but he looks a step slow. He took some big hits. Uh, and the third down play calling continues to be a disaster. Plus, again, the uh, the timeout situation to blow your final timeout with the clock stopped and then have the kick go awry. It's a tough watch. Uh, I'm going to be honest with you. It really was. Um, all right, Lamar uh, Lamar Jackson. Turned down the final contract offer from uh, the Baltimore Ravens because he wants at least as much guaranteed money as the Cleveland Browns were willing to give Deshaun Watson. Uh, The Baltimore Ravens were not willing to do that. Probably means they're going to franchise tag him at the end of the year. And Lamar could be setting himself up for a Kirk Cousins-like move where he bets on himself back-to-back years gets big guaranteed contract dollars for two years, and then potentially pieces out and goes somewhere else. Uh, The Baltimore Ravens clearly in a tough spot. They made a big offer. They were not willing to make the kind of offer that the Cleveland Browns and Jimmy Haslam did for Deshaun Watson. And as a result, Lamar Jackson is saying, hey, I'm going to gamble on myself. Again, the best example I would point uh, to for him is what happened with Kirk Cousins. If he plays and finishes this year healthy and has a successful season, uh, then to me, uh, he is going to be setting himself up for an even bigger payday, but he's taken on the risk. Credit to him for being willing to do so. Uh, By the way, second time I've been to a Titans game in a row and had an extremely dejected walk back across uh, the, uh, the bridge against the Bengals, it was because A last-second field goal went through against the Giants. It was because a last-second field goal did not go through. Titans, of course, on the wrong end of both because that's what the Titans do. But the reason why the loss to the Bengals hurt so much last year was because of all of the young quarterback talent in the AFC. It's overwhelmingly slanted on this side of the field. Titans missed their window. Titans had a chance to potentially make a run to the Super Bowl with a mediocre aging quarterback in Ryan Tannehill. And now there are many teams with many better, younger quarterbacks. Titans window feels like it is closed. I don't think we're far away from blowing up everything and rebuilding on a multi-year process. We'll see whether I'm right or wrong. I am Clay Travis. I hope all of you have had fantastic weekends. I'll be back with you tomorrow, going to right now on my new book, this has been Outkick, the show DBAP, unless you need to S BAP.